TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and Mihir, and we're a little giddy because it is <laughs> the holidays are upon all, us. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> almost. Too yes. much eggnog. I always feel like there's a crush before Christmas, yes. which is too much, right? So it's like this last week feels very chaotic to me, and then it all gets better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm always surprised. So you're in the middle of the crush? I'm in the middle of the crush. Oh, oh I'm over oh. the crush. Yeah. I'm over the crush, and I've got the out-of-office thing on my email. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, right. Nice. It's never really true, right? It's never really true. <laughs> That's the other thing. <laughs> but you promise, it, you promise yourself this time it well, will be. Well, no, but it allows you to be picky about who you respond oh, to. Oh, see? Okay. So that's the If that's you're going to do that, you don't tell everybody on a podcast. That's true. Okay. But um, we have stuff to talk about this week. Serious stuff. Serious stuff, yes. Business stuff. Business stuff, yes. <laughs> We're, we're so giddy. Are we going to get through this? <laughs> we're gonna. Okay. Felix, what did you bring in? To I talk would about? like to talk about Verizon. And you remember these two acquisitions that they made and, you know, things didn't turn out so well. And so I would love to hear what you make of it. Okay. Verizon. Okay. And then, Mihir, you said you had something. I wanted to talk about radical transparency, which has become a huge buzzword. Oh, it's such a buzzword. And I think we should just try to figure out what the heck it is, and then we should figure out how we feel about it, because it is spreading in a viral way, and I'm very conflicted about it. So uh, I want you to I have thoughts. Mm, Felix, I, I want you to resolve that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. Okay, Felix, you want to get us started? Yes. So uh, Verizon, you saw the news. They wrote down a big portion of the value of the acquisition of uh, both AOL and Yahoo. A little bit of background. You remember in uh, 2015, they spent $4.4 billion acquiring AOL, uh, one of the leading portals at some point in time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then uh, two years later, after a long saga, they bought Yahoo for almost the same amount of money, $4.5 billion. At that point in time, they were super excited about these businesses. And there was a vision that in online advertising, it would be Google, it would be Facebook, and it would be the third really serious exactly. player was Verizon. And it's not, you know, what they always... They called struck, it Oath, didn't they? Uh, they called it Oath, yeah, yeah. which, you know, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that might have been part of the issue. But 
they wrote off now half of the value of that acquisition. And of course, now everybody's super smart, right? Everybody saw it coming. Everybody said they would never work. But if you go back, the commentary was actually pretty positive. And I think the CFO at that point in time of Verizon, I think, said it best. Yahoo brings viewers. Viewers bring advertising. Advertising brings top-line growth. So super simple. At that point in time, Google had about 31% of global digital advertising. Facebook had 12%. And Yahoo and AOL combined were 2.2%. And so the idea was if you can just get a little bit of the growth in this market – you be in a fabulous place. And it wasn't it also that there's demand for a third larger player? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You didn't want all your advertising on these two portals. And if you look at the size of the audience, it's more than a billion people who read one of the many brands that they bought. And it was a disaster. Yeah. Why? Why do you think it didn't work? You know, when you read that quote... It's so interesting. Viewership brings advertisers. Advertisers brings growth. That's the TV formula. In other words, if you have a sitcom like Seinfeld or Friends, and if you have viewership, viewership draws advertisers. Advertisers drives growth. The difference, of course, is that when you do digital advertising, it's not just viewership. It's performance. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I'm an advertiser... It's very low risk for me to give you part of my advertising budget. Oh, you're Verizon? You've got this new thing called Oath? Sure. It's actually pretty low risk for me, and I want to do it. I'm looking for someplace else to put my money. So I'll give you some of my money. But then I need to see those dollars go to work. This is why we call it performance marketing. If you can't perform, then I'm going to start to withdraw. So the fact that they weren't able to build the business meant that they weren't able to build the engine. And is this an issue of data analytics, because at the same time, one of the promises was, because from the mobile phone business, we know so much about you, right? right? Right. In a way, all the pieces that you think make for really a powerful data pool that allows you to target advertising, they have everything. Yeah, Yeah. but again, on paper, the pieces are all there, right? Because you have more than a billion viewers. You have 100 million mobile phone accounts. And you think, wow, I'm going to combine this. I'm going to have all of this rich data. But if that were all it took, then there would be no reason for Facebook and Google to hire hundreds and hundreds of amazing AI scientists and engineers. And in retrospect, of course, it's easy to say these things. But you look at Verizon and you say, "What, what in the world ever made us think that this was a company that knew how to build this kind of platform, could attract this kind of talent, and could build the kind of engine you need to compete against the Ferraris of the world, which are Google and Facebook. But I think we should just ask ourselves how much we couldn't have anticipated this, right? Because in a way, it just feels like there's no way. What were people thinking? I mean, this is like an old media company who's going to try to kind of get into this business. They have way too much cash flow. They're looking for growth. And what do they do? They spend a ton of cash on kind of junky assets, meaning it's not as if AOL and Yahoo were like, you know, well-developed sites. So it just, to me, it's kind of a lesson, again, in mergers gone wrong and in kind of older companies looking for growth in all the wrong places, as opposed to doing what they probably could have done or should have done, which is maybe try to build this themselves or do smaller Mm -hmm. acquisitions. Mm -hmm. I don't know. To me, this is a tale. Maybe this is like a very financy perspective, but this is a tale of like, way too much cash, swishing in the door at Verizon, not enough growth, let's solve the problem, and it ends miserably every single time. 
I think at the time of the acquisition, I don't think there was a well-developed understanding of how hard this is, really. You know, we've never been in a scenario where across a business landscape where you're seeing so many of these mergers and acquisitions where the integration piece actually requires building a new layer of technology that is driven by artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what you're seeing across the entire media landscape. And so it's easy from the outside looking in to look at what Google has built with their ad tech platform and say, oh, we could build that. Or, oh, look what Facebook did. We could build that. And I think there's been a growing recognition that actually building an ad tech platform requires a sophistication with respect to engineering, the likes of which I don't think these companies have any any so, idea. So, so when I go ahead, yeah, so so what I was going to say going forward, what yep. it does make you think of ATT Time Warner, like you're looking at oh, that yeah. now. <laughs> That's yeah. the big. And this thing now looks more fraught with risk than ever before. And that's $85 billion. Exactly. $85 billion acquisition. Because what makes us think that (laughs) AT&T knows how to do this? So can I make sure I understand this? So one way to think about this is these guys just can't do it. The other way to saying this is M&A is not the way to do it. It's clear to me that M&A is problematic for some of the reasons you said. But are you also saying that the thought that these media companies can reinvent themselves and build an ad tech platform and attract the talent is just fantastical? Like, is it that bad? I think it's fantastical. And the reason I think it's fantastical is if you go to the places in the world that are at the leading edge of building this kind of technology, whether it's Silicon Valley or whether it's in China, you know, wherever you go, the fiercest competition is for talent. And if you're a hotshot engineer, are you going to go work for Verizon Oath? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, what? Like, what's your incentive to do? There's no financial incentive yeah, no, to do I that. Agree. There's absolutely. So you've already lost before you've started, right? But then you're just managing decline. Because I mean, in a way, look, I'm sympathetic to this. This is what a lot of people in finance would say. Like, you just have a cash machine. You just distribute it out, and don't even try to reinvent yourself. Is that what you're saying? I guess I'm saying something a little bit different, which is if you think about the value chain. And I think this is what Verizon now is going to do. You've got to figure out where can I win in this value chain? So I think what you see Verizon doing right now is doubling down on its mobile business, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. that's yep. they have basically come to the conclusion they're not going to win over there. Yeah. So they're going to double down over here, which seems to me anyway to make more sense. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really hard. I think the performance results that you get when you advertise on Google and Facebook, trying to meet those benchmarks if you are a third party right now. Those are really intelligent ad tech platforms. So I think one of the things that you said earlier that strikes me as super interesting, there is a sense in which a younger generation of marketers has already gotten so used to platforms and the way you buy advertising on Google, you buy advertising on Facebook, that that, in a sense, becomes a real impediment Hmm. to entering the market. And so I wonder if part of what we're seeing is no one ever got fired for buying IBM, like in the next generation. It just seems like the safe thing to do. It may work. It may not work. Here's why I think yes and no. There's a reason why no one ever got fired for working with IBM, because IBM actually slotted really well into the way big enterprise companies worked. And so if you talk to a really sophisticated digital marketer today, and you sit them down in front of the set of tools that Google provides, 
to do this well. Or you sit them down in front of Facebook and the tools. And then you pluck them out of that environment and you sit them down in front of Oath. It's like night and yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, you're never going to get fired for using one of the big platforms. But the reason for that is that they're providing you with a set of tools. Yeah, but I think but they're providing you with tools that I think when they say performance, it's performance in a very narrow sense, not performance in the sense that, you know, do we have bigger success in the marketplace? And so I think in a very smart and clever way, they have created a language of performance that sort of is what we care about and sort of isn't what we care yeah. about. But this is what's clever about it. They've taken a performance metric that we used to think of as somewhat binary. Did you buy something or not? <laughs> um, and it turns yes. out, because the number of people that actually buy something is a really small number, they, what they've done is they've created a whole bunch of in-between metrics, yes, right? Along that's exactly that right. Purchase yes. funnel yes. to measure every little piece of that to give yeah. you some sense. Yeah. So imagine you spend like $50 million and then at some point it turns out it actually did not do anything. And now imagine two scenarios. You spent the $50 million on Google or you spent the $50 million on Oath. If you spent it on Oath, I think that's the yeah. end of your career. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody will say, what were you thinking? Oh, yeah. yeah. Good, yeah. But I think, I mean, we shouldn't trivialize yeah. it too much. I mean, relative to the other media spends they could do, this is way more effective relative to TV or any kind of broadcasting stuff. I sense that you guys are beating up on their actual capabilities relative to their no, purported. No, 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 no. Uh, look, there are small brands out there that owe their existence to Facebook. I mean, let's... Oh, sure. Yeah, that's awesome. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. they know exactly what their customer acquisition costs are. And so I think, Felix, you and I are saying the same thing. I mean, the engine that Facebook and Google provides, I think, if you're a layperson, you yeah. have no idea how sophisticated this stuff is. Having said that, to Felix's point, I mean, these are not, you know, miracle work machines either. <laughs> and marketing continues to be an inexact science. I, I mean, I think that's what <laughs> yeah, you're saying. Yeah, right? yeah. Yes. Say, I mean, yes. I get on LinkedIn, Yeah, I get advertising whether or not I'd be interested in getting my MBA all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Which are these moments yes. where I think, oh, my God, yes. hmm, maybe digital advertising, there's some room for <laughs> improvement. <laughs> on the other hand, my son, I was talking to my older son on the phone the other night. He's like, Mom, Facebook has got me pegged. I am right. such a sucker for anything Facebook tries to sell me. And so I think you do see both yeah, ends both. of yeah. the spectrum. Yeah. So if you had been Verizon, is there another way to create a third kind of competitor yeah, to Google so and Facebook? Or is it, I guess I'm walking away from this conversation asking myself, you know, is it that Google and Facebook have such a lock on this, that they have such no, technology? No, 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 no. Yeah, I can't wait to see a third party. It strikes me as so surprising that we have yes. these only two companies so that far. dominate this wide open space. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to see what people come up with, uh, how to tackle this issue from a more promising angle. Yeah, excellent. Agreed. Hey, Mihir, you wanted to talk about radical transparency. Yeah, so this is a buzzword which is really spreading in terms of organizational behavior and the way we think about how companies should be run. And in fact, it's almost you know evangelical, which is the people who believe in it are hardcore mm. people. And they've had some exponents who are really powerful, so particularly Ray Dalio, but also Reed Hastings at Netflix. They really believe in this. So first off, what is it? In some ways, you can think about it as a simple thing, which is more transparency, more honesty, better. And you can think about it in incremental steps. So the first way you might think about this is just with workplaces. 
you know, like if you think about breaking down offices into cubbies that you can actually all sit in, that's a little bit of transparency. But it goes further than that. It goes into, well, maybe everybody should know what everyone's getting paid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now we're on a different level of transparency where we're saying, actually, no, no, compensation data out there, everyone gets to see everything. And then it goes another step, which it kind of goes to, you know what, the way we communicate has to be more honest. And so there's kind of a sense in which conversations are supposed to be brutally honest. And all of this, of course, is in the name of greater organizational effectiveness. And then you can go even further. And I think the example from Bridgewater with the baseball cards is illustrative, which is, you know, you have almost like a real-time way to analyze how people perceive you. Yeah. Even, and you know who else. And you know who else. So Felix yeah. thinks this intro is too long yeah. and I see it on my baseball card and it's literally that level At of transparency. Bridgewater, every meeting is videotaped. And it's all videotaped. Yes. So the question is, you know, first off, in general, when these things happen, these trends happen, I'm skeptical. Um, having <laughs> said that, I have to say there's an element of this, which is I believe in honesty. I believe in transparency. I think they're good things. And I, I wonder if I'm being put in a position where I have to argue, well, no, not that much because <laughs> it, it feels like it's excessive. So I'm curious about your reactions and if you think there's some natural boundary on this or are these folks right? Just Wait, take it all the before way. Before we get into it, here. so you mentioned two examples. One was Bridgewater and one was Netflix. Yeah. What was your sense of how the employees at both of those firms experience the culture. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think there's, you know, two things to say. One is it's hard to tell because these are protective places and it's hard to get really good readings on what they're doing. But we have heard things that suggest they're brutal cultures and there are people who are walking away from meetings crying. And we know that turnover rates are not exactly small at these places and they may be large particularly because of these practices. On the other hand, there are people inside these organizations who say, well, look at the way it's translating into performance. I think it is clear that for some people it's so brutal and it's so horrible that it breaks people down in emotionally destructive ways. And then for some people they find, well, look at the performance and maybe that's good enough. So what do you think? So I thought about myself first. <laughs> I thought, would, I, would I like to work in one of these places? And the answer is hell no. Like I would stay as far away as, right. I, as I possibly can. Yeah, no, we, I, we all thrive on positive feedback. And by the way, you look so handsome today. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. So to me, I think much of the power comes from This is great, I think, for a particular set of people and for a particular set of activities. So I'm not surprised that, say, in financial services, this is something that works relatively well. And I'm not surprised that the kinds of people who thrive in this kind of environment, that they feel is the greatest culture ever. But what you see, I think, with these differentiated cultures is, uh, we know a little bit about Bridgewater. It's early on. There's a lot of churn. Like people go and it's either for you or it's not for you. This is a really, I think, interesting way to think about this, which is people will select into these firms. Once they select in, then it'll be fine. Except, you know, we tend to think that places that become very homogenous, their employee base becomes very homogenous. It ends up driving sometimes bad decision making. So I end up with the same type of person and they're kind of ruthless with each other and it's not clear to me where that ends up. Yes, yeah. So I love this way of thinking about it because – then you can ask, what's the type of business that would thrive if, in fact, you end up with a relatively homogenous workforce? So one of the things 
that we know from research in the effectiveness of sales forces, for instance, that optimism is really important for salespeople. Mm -hmm. It's super functional to be a little more optimistic than really you should be. Right. And, of course, radical transparency is completely – because I'm going to call you down. And it's like, oh, actually, you're not that great a salesperson and so on. And that is really terrible. And so – Rather than thinking, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing, is like, where is this likely to work and where is it likely to but fail? But where is it the case that people want to be pulled down or being told really harsh things in real time? When can that be beneficial, I guess? You know how we all, what is it? Like the joke is 80% of people think they're better than average at driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody <laughs> thinks they're more self-aware than they really are. There are all these examples where we're just like overly optimistic in a way that is often not functional. Right. And so there, I think, giving people a sense of you think you're self-aware, but really like look what you do to other people and you yeah. pay no attention to it. So, yeah. so where I can improve, I think yeah. radical transparency and, and honest feedback is really great. Yeah. So, uh, Youngmi, is no, it is it I, too much honesty or do you I, think it's actually all good? I'm so uncomfortable with this trend. And it's not necessarily the concept of radical transparency that sets me off, but the way that it's currently being executed. So what you're seeing is this radical candor. Yeah. I mean, really what it is. So you see companies deciding that it's really okay to give very candid And the word candid is almost always used in some negative context. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm, easy to mm -hmm. give candid positive feedback. So the real edge comes from giving negative candid feedback on a real-time basis. The reason I'm uncomfortable with it is what is the problem it's trying to solve? If the problem you're trying to solve is, oh, we need to increase performance, then it's predicated on the notion that the way to increase performance is through negative feedback. And I just don't... Well, let me try to say why. I think that what somebody would say, which is, it's what you said earlier, which is, it's easy to give positive feedback, and then nobody's giving negative feedback. And so then it becomes asymmetric, and then it becomes just basically groupthink, and then you never get to true answers. But you're assuming that those are the only two options. And this is what I hate. So you're assuming that you can only give positive feedback, or you can give brutal negative feedback. And I disagree. I think that you can give honest feedback with empathy. I think there is a way to give honest feedback. And I think that giving feedback successfully is an art. And one size does not fit all. So if I'm managing a team, then part of my job is to bring out the best of every single person on that team. For some individuals on that team, it might be being a little bit tougher. For others, the opposite. It might be reinforcing positive behaviors. In other words, I think it's being used right now as an excuse for people in positions of power to act with an utter lack of social grace, to be quite honest. This is so interesting to me because I think part of what I was thinking about is underrepresented groups or gendered aspects to this. Exactly. So, Mihir, that was so insightful when you said it will lead to a homogenous culture. If I think about who thrives in an environment like this, if all the feedback you're getting is of this nature, then you're going to end up with a really homogenous culture. And the truth is there are extraordinary people that are not best motivated in this way. So the notion that you can't give tough, honest feedback but do it respectfully and do it with empathy – I think that's the part that's lost. Yeah. I think what's interesting to me about this is the way you think about management and leadership is managing the heterogeneity. And radical transparency is a strategy which says, no, 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 no. We're just going to manage one way. And in fact, it's actually 
kind of avoiding the real task of management, which is is to manage the heterogeneity. Yes, and there's an assumption that if you're kind, then that means you're going to lower your standards. Right. And what I'm saying is it is also possible to set high standards and still create a culture where people are respectful and engage with each other with sensitivity. One element of heterogeneity of differences that is lost is thinking about how relationships evolve over time. So I find, for instance, with students is in the beginning when we don't know each other well, mm-hmm. I'm super careful with feedback because we don't know each other. Yeah. And then, I don't know, after a couple of weeks of interaction, you know all I really care about is make you perform at a higher level. That's my job. That's what I do. And at that point in time, once we have that common understanding, I can actually be much more frank. And the frankness is not like this harsh culture where people cry because they get fired in front of everyone. It's carried by a sense that we're trusting each other. And I may be right with my feedback, I may be wrong with my feedback, but it's all carried by a sense of, I want you to perform at a higher level. And I think that changes everything. So what I maybe like the least is like the sense that there's fixed rules, like the however many hundred rules in Bridgewater's case. And like these rules is how we interact with one another without even thinking a second about what's our history, how long have we worked with each other, how do we think about how we interact. Yeah. I was just going to draw a personal example, which is similar to what Felix was saying. I was just thinking, I taught earlier today, and you know, I have a sense of what's happening in a room, and I think we all do. When we've been in this job this long, you can tell when things are not going well, right? You can tell people are disengaged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'm actually not sure I want to know more than I already know. But the funny part is I want some of it, right? Like I, I yeah. actually appreciate yes. when somebody like rolls their eyes or looks away, then I know I'm losing them. And I need to know that because I, to be a good instructor, you need to know when you're losing people. But this is what I guess I was struggling with, which is what's the optimal amount of it? Like, mm-hmm. But I don't think one size fits all. We're not robots. You know, hiring is an investment. Hiring is a commitment. When you hire someone, you should be communicating to that person is we're going to invest in you. We want you to develop. We want you to thrive here. And what that means is that we're going to work with you and we're committed to that. And that's not a one size all fit. I mean, I really believe that. Now, having said all of that, there is one scenario involving transparency that I actually is my exception. And that is, I think there should be much more transparency with respect to the decisions management makes. So, Mm -hmm. for example, salaries, I think there should be much more transparency in how much people are getting paid. The decisions that management imposes on an organization, I think there needs to be a lot more transparency there, simply because when there's that much room for discretion without any kind of accountability, it's too easy for disparities to emerge that are based on biases that are not necessarily justified, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's That would be a great thing to talk about in the future future episode. Okay, well, I think we're clear. None of us wants to have baseball (laughs) cards with our own uh, personal statistics. Thank you very much. Exactly. You also look good today. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. I feel so much better now. Okay, guys, I have a pick for you. Great. My pick is, have you heard of Atavist Magazine? Atavist Magazine engages in what they call slow journalism. So they come up with one article a month. 
one article, <laughs> one long-form article. <laughs> I know it sounds funny, but I mean, they <laughs> deliver to your inbox. You pay $24 a year for a subscription, so you're basically paying two bucks yeah. a month, which seems, on the one hand, absurd, but on the other hand, if it's good, what a bargain. They have really beautifully written and curated pieces. Interesting. And if you go to their website, you can sample some of their stories to give you a sense. The most recent one was a story called Blood Cries Out by Sean Patrick Cooper. And it's a story of two families whose farms sit side by side in Missouri. There's a crime. It rips the whole town apart. So, I'm sorry, is this nonfiction? This nonfiction. Is all, oh, it's all nonfiction, it's right? It's journalism. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah journalism. it's journalism. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's long-form yeah. journalism. Oh. And that one story gives you just a sense of how beautifully written and how comprehensively researched every single piece is. But there's something so elegant about getting one piece a month. That's great. Yeah, it's that beautiful. Out of really magazine. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. What about you, Mahir? Um, so I have a quick one, which is I did happen to just binge watch the second season of Atlanta with Donald Glover. It is amazing. And I think he is amazing, including his musical exploits. But here's my real shout out, which is to Richard Handler, who runs Jeffries, which is an investment bank. Wait, and hold on. Atlanta wasn't your recommendation? Remember, I'm totally he always confused. has two. See, I always he squeeze in. Wait, I'm so hey, 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 okay, I'm Wait, losing so time. is it really that good? Because it I keep so hearing good. about it. It is and so I good. And I didn't watch the first season. I saw the second season. You just went straight to the second season? That was season? the one that was on the plane. Uh, but yeah. Okay, and it was um, really that good. But and it was fantastic. And he is really doing something special. Okay, but now you're going But my real shout out is to Richard Handler, who is the CEO of Jefferies. So there was an article in Bloomberg about a month ago talking about a lot of people in finance and basically had quotes from 20 or so people about how they were not willing to travel with women because they were worried about the possibilities of uh, being accused of things. The Bloomberg article is incredible. And so Handler has like a year-end letter and he just eviscerated the industry and anybody who would think like that. So I'm just going to read a quick quote from him. Here's what he says. Many things in life are complicated or have shades of nuance that require serious analysis, debate, and complicated decision-making. Some things in life are obvious, straightforward, and crystal clear. In our opinion, this topic falls into the latter category. If you don't know how to conduct yourself as a responsible, courteous, and balanced human being, the fault lies exclusively with you and not with an allegedly flawed system designed to ensnare the innocent. I thought it was the first time I've heard a CEO, let alone in financial services, just go straight to the core of the issue and straight to this argument that the Me Too movement has had a backlash where men are afraid of being with women. I thought this was the most efficient takedown of that entire argument that I've ever seen. So kudos to Richard Handler, who runs Jeffries. But I also encourage people to read the original well, article. Good point. That sparked that response. We should, we'll post both. Why don't we yeah, post, we'll post both post both. And so it's amazing that he wrote that. I, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's okay. fantastic. That's great. Okay. Felix, what about yourself? I have a book recommendation. Okay. It's on some of the bestseller lists. Uh, the title is The Value of Everything. It's by Mariana Matsukato. And it's one of these really interesting reads where the question is so fascinating that even though I literally disagree just about with everything that I read. Mm -hmm. It's super hard to put the book down. Oh, that is fantastic. And the idea is, is sort of like going way back also in history. Why is it that given all the economic activity that you have in an economy, how is it that some of the value that gets created goes to consumers? Some of the value is retained by a fraction of the workforce, profits of companies. And why is it that we observe that many people who have not 
the best paying jobs, they seem to be in a position of uh, getting less and less and less. And what's really great about the book is when she goes back in history, you get the sense of the things that I always took for granted are actually recent in history. People have thought about value in radically different yeah. ways in the course huh. in the course of economic yeah. history. And so, I love the idea that you disagreed with most of it, but yeah. you kept turning the page and you were forced to. I mean, that's the sign of a really incredible writer. Yes, and it strikes me as the question who gets to keep is, yeah. much of the value yeah, of what yeah. we produce yeah. is so pertinent, right? Yeah, it's yeah, so absolutely. important that absolutely. much to her credit, there is a particular view. But I think more than anything else, the book is written to spark a debate. Right. Wow. Okay. So we gave everybody lots of things to read and watch over, over the break. That's it for tonight. Thanks for listening and happy holidays. No matter what holiday you celebrate, have a wonderful, wonderful holiday. Thank you. Happy Thank holidays. You. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.